0: Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson.
1: Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And if you've been wondering why I haven't been releasing as many episodes as normal, that's because we're dealing with this Thanksgiving thing, and then we got Christmas going. Oh yeah, and the WSOP has sucked all of the poker players in the entire universe into one location for a couple of months. So we've slowed down, we've taken a little break, My plan is that in January to fire back up on all cylinders, get things going in the way that they usually do. Today, my guest on CPG just took down the 1K Ladies Championship at this year's aforementioned WSOP to win her first of what I hope to be many gold bracelet, Laura Eisenberg. If you were to grab a pen and paper and start listing the qualities of high achievers, it's quite likely Laura would have all the qualities. Disciplined, she's a medicine doctor who's been practicing for over 20 years. Courageous, one of her all-time favorite hobbies is skydiving. Brilliant, in just a few moments, you'll be able to judge this quality for yourself. So in today's show with Laura, you're going to learn the story about the time she jumped out of a plane on a blind date and fell in love. Laura's origin story into the world of cards a rundown of her recent WSOP victory, and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, it is my honor and privilege to bring to you a top-shelf poker player, an amazing human being,
2: the one and only Dr. Laura Eisenberg. Laura, welcome
1: to Chasing Poker Greatness. How are you doing this morning?
3: Doing great. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. And hat tip to Mister Binkley for telling me, "Yo, you gotta have this. You gotta have her on." She just took down the ladies' event.
3: Yeah, I didn't realize he was so connected. But, uh, <laughs> I made him a happy man uh, last week. So,
1: yeah, he, he he's been in Greatness Village for a while now. I think he's bought every CPG product. He's one of my <laughs> one of my best customers. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, so. We'll get to your recent victory and c- congratulations again, uh, Thank you. but let's talk about the journey that led up to your recent WSOP bracelet. What does your origin story into the world of poker look like?
3: Sure, it's it's a long story, um, and I'm sure there are some people like me, but it's going to make me sound super nerdy at the same time. So I was a PC gamer.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't want to burst your bubble, but. I'm pretty sure 96% of my audience are complete (laughs) nerds.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I started out in PC gaming and um, I was, you know, like getting the latest PC, you know, set up and all that stuff and was literally watching the news one night and a commercial came on probably for Poker Stars, and it's like, you know, play poker on the internet. And I went, what? People are playing, you know, poker for money? Like you can actually do this on the internet. And I couldn't believe it. And I was like, well, I literally had never played a panda of poker ever. But I was like, I'm sure there's books, right? You can figure out how to do this. And I'm I'm not going to play PC games anymore. And I immediately went out and it was like Harrington, and, you know, it was all uh, Dan and uh, Malmuth and just pick up all the uh, books and start reading. And it was all Limit Hold'em. And and I just started reading everything I could get my hands on.
1: Can we go back a little bit? And uh, I'm going to break a social taboo because I like setting the timeline for these things. Um, this seems to be around like 2005-ish, maybe 2006.
3: Yeah, the year, what, the moneymaker year was what, 2004? Three? Four. four. Okay. I think four. So yeah, it would have been right around there. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, it was right after that it happened because everything had exploded. And, and uh,
1: h- how old were you? Um, how old were you in this time? Mm -hmm. And what did like, that's the social taboo breaking.
3: Um, it was, I think all over the thing I'm 53 right now. Um, so that would have been, I guess I was, does that make me 43, 33?
1: No, that's 16 years ago. 16 Uh, years ago.
3: Okay. So I was like
1: mid thirties, late thirties. Yeah. Yeah. So what were you doing in your career? Um, that, and I'm guessing gaming was just a, a hobby,
2: right?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So I went straight from uh, high school into a three-year college and then four-year med school track. And then I started out in surgery for a year, switched to radiology, uh, did a fellowship in abdominal imaging stuff, and then went straight into practice um, in the Washington, D.C. area. So um, I'd been in practice for quite a while. And then just I always liked computer games, like from the very beginning as everything started evolving from like the Zork days on. I was, you know, totally hooked on computer games. and
1: uh, So tell me, tell me about growing up. You know, this is kind of an interesting combination of healer slash gamer. Um, did you know that you're, <laughs> you were going to be a healer growing up? Was that your dream? And then what role did games or competition play?
3: Yeah, it's funny. I actually remember, like, being a kid and they had the little plastic doctor bags that you could get. And there was like the nurse's bag. There was like the doctor's bag. And I was always like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. And I don't know why, like where the idea even came from. But I thought like, that's just what I thought I was going to do from the time I was like five. And uh, so I did. And but I've always been just very competitive, but I'm, I've never been very good at physical sports. Like skydiving was my one, like actual physical sport. Um, But most of the stuff I've done, like I played pool competitively and uh, before skydiving. It's like, it's always been stuff where it's not like super athletic. <laughs> well, not, certainly, it fits the bill.
1: <laughs> we're we're going to touch on skydiving because that piques my interest. Um, and I, I imagine bad skydivers. <laughs> I don't know exactly what that looks <laughs> like, but one. it probably doesn't look good. Um, <laughs> how the heck did you get into skydiving and what is like being good at skydiving mean besides, you know, not splatting on the ground?
3: <laughs> yeah. I, so I have a vision or memory i guess of being a kid and going to an air show so it was probably the golden knights army parachute team that was there doing some demonstration and i just remember being a little kid probably five or six and looking at that and just like being amazed and astounded that people were allowed to do that that you were allowed to like fly in the sky and do that stuff and i thought for sure i would do that someday and i I always knew that i would and you know so there were a few times when people were going to go do a tandem or a Uh, static line skydive back before tandems. And I was like, no, no, because when I do it, I'll do it a bunch. Like it won't be a one-time thing. And I kind of knew that. And so it was when I was actually in just in my internship in surgery and uh, literally a guy wanted to go on a blind date. And somebody said, there's this guy, he's like an anesthesia resident. He wants to go on a blind date and he wants to go skydiving. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. You know, so I went on a blind date for my first skydive and uh the date didn't stick, but the skydiving stuck and I just kept doing it uh, after that. But uh, but competitive skydiving is um like the kind of thing that I did. You're there's four person teams and uh eight person teams and sometimes larger. Um but you're doing formations, so it's very physical. Um there's a lot of you're flying vertically over each other, um, and you're you basically they'll draw a list of it's hard to explain it. Uh over the phone, but they're, they're, you're, you're making a formations. formations, right? Right. Yeah. You're making formations and we'll do, there'll be a sequence for a, a competitive jump. And mm. uh, you have to go through that sequence as many times as you can in a certain amount of working time, which for four people is 35 seconds. So you have a video person on the team, they jump after you, they have to video it and you have to show everything. So every single grip has to be demonstrated to the judges. And uh, so it's a speed competition effectively. So is there, is there danger?
1: danger in getting close to each other, like going down? um, I mean, obviously there's danger, but more so than like regularly skydiving.
3: Well, honestly, like when you're doing team jumps, like with a four person team and that sort of thing, it's really not that dangerous as far as things go, because you're jumping with people that you know really well, um, who are very predictable. um, And you're jumping with people who have a high level of competence. um, You know, so the more dangerous times are, coming into land where lots of different parachutes are converging into a space to land. And maybe there's mm-hmm. inexperienced people and less and very experienced people and faster canopies and slower canopies. Like that's a time of danger. Or some of the large formation skydiving stuff that I did like the 400 person world record in, the sky, in Thailand, you know, getting out of a C-130 that's going like 150 miles an hour and just hitting that airstream and people's bodies just kind of sometimes just scattering. That's a really dangerous time. Um, so some people got like dislocated and broken shoulders on exits and stuff like that. So that's, that's a time I just, anytime there's like really unknown factors like that, like in Thailand you're just like sometimes landing in really weird places. And uh, like I, we were landing at like in the backyard of a school and then in a um, driving range of a golf <laughs> to, like course and stuff. So you just, there's a lot of unknown variables. That's when the danger is.
1: Yeah. That, that makes sense. And I was going to say, leave it, leave it to, you know, the male gender to go out on a date and, you know, our, our companion chooses getting thrown out of an airplane instead of going out on another (laughs) date with us.
3: That's,
1: (laughs) that's about how I
3: ended up changing sides to women. So maybe that was (laughs)
1: Uh, probably not, (laughs) (laughs) probably not. Um, I, I, sense a theme though. So you, you knew what you wanted to do both, as a doctor and that one day you're going to be jumping out of planes from a very young age. Uh, Is there anything to that? Like just knowing what you want to do and then going for it?
3: Yeah, I think, honestly, I think I got that a lot from my dad, you know, and it's a little bit being kind of borderline OCD probably, but you know, we're just, we're like a dog on a bone about stuff. You know, you like, you set your sights on something and then you just keep going after it until You know, you get it or fail. And you just keep getting up and going again. And uh, I think that's kind of where that came from.
1: Do we have any failures? Anything you you just went after but didn't make it?
3: Uh, Yeah, I'm sure there's been, you know, things like, you know, things that you you don't remember them probably because you don't end up pursuing them uh, as in-depth if you're maybe not good at them right off the bat. I mean, if I dabbled in some stuff like playing guitar or stuff like that, I didn't become, you know, the (laughs) next... You know, who, whatever yeah you know the who lead singer or anything but
1: <laughs> yeah we don't even have names to cite so <laughs> just block that <laughs> right. out of our memory um yeah. so you, you found poker right you're successful high powered um in your career and transitioning from computer gaming to poker why why did poker resonate with you in a way that like gaming didn't
3: well, the idea that you can make money from a hobby for one thing you know so you know when i played pool competitively i mean i play pool for money sometimes too but it also wasn't like the competitive part of it um when i competed in college it was not about money you know but that aspect layered on top like you know that that just grabbed me for sure you know and it's just i think i just always have to have a competitive outlet in my life in general But the unknown outcomes and just sort of all the psychology behind it, you know, was very appealing, you know, and it was so hyped up on TV, especially at that time, you know, about, you know, just all the drama uh, behind it just made it seem super exciting. And, you know, I just I've always liked kind of gambling stuff. Even as a kid, we used to go to Vegas every year and like we'd walk through the casino and my parents literally would like let me throw a silver dollar in the slot machine. And, you know, the first time I won something with the slot machine, you know, you're just like, whoa you can get money (laughs) playing games and not doing anything. That just seems amazing. Mm -hmm. So it just feels like money, you know, that you've gotten just crazily, you know, there's something that feels extra good about it.
1: Yeah. It it feels like you're a fan of the risk too. Like you got a piece of you that, that enjoys the risk taking because I mean, in your professional life, there's lots of risks in skydiving. I think the risks are pretty clear. Uh, poker there's also risk and there's also this feeling this emotional feeling you know when you're playing a big pot you're, the adrenaline just how how it makes you feel that is kind of tough to get from other areas of life or other hobbies
3: yeah i think the dopamine hit part is definitely a, a piece of it you know and kind of needing that excitement and uh and to just have an avenue in which to kind of prove yourself you know to you know, something that's very difficult to work at it. And, um, and then to be able to hold your own and compete at it is just very appealing in whatever sport it is.
1: Yeah, you got you get you have all the ingredients to make a recipe for something that you're going to pursue in earnest for a very long time. Uh, So you find online poker in the mid 2000s, you start reading books, what did your poker journey look like from there?
3: Yeah. So it was like paradise poker right back then and kind of all these crazy sites. And then somewhere along the way, it was like, you know, we should go to Atlantic City, you know, where you can like play poker for real in person. And so we went to Atlantic City, played like limit poker at like there was this crazy like pink chip game at uh, I think the Tropicana. And you could like get a room for free. Pink chip. So they had like five dollar
1: chips or I
3: think it was like. Seven dollar three fifty were the blinds, something like that. So you, for whatever reason, you would end up like with these mountains of like these small denomination chips. So it always looked like you were some kind of a baller with like huge stacks of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But in, you know, in the end, you had like sixty dollars or something in front of you. But you know, it was it, it just appealed to everybody for some reason. And uh, and then I think one day I couldn't get into it. The limit games were all full, and they're like, "Well, we have one, two, no limit." I was like, "I don't know," you know. But I was like, I guess I'll sit there for a minute while I'm waiting for a limit seat. And I was like, whoa, this is different. You know, this seems there's something that seems exciting about this that's different. Like, and I don't know what I'm doing. You know, but I was like, oh, I should learn how to play no limit. And then somehow, I like a charity turning tournament came up, and I was like, oh, I really like tournaments. You know, because the tournaments tell a story. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's different. And so I just was really enjoying, you know, tournament poker and. And then just trying to, there just wasn't that much out there to learn. And then actually WPT bootcamp um, was a thing uh, back then. And so I signed up uh, to do that. And who that is running, Nick running Brancato, it back then? Oh, sorry. Nick Brancato, Nick Binger. Yeah, yeah. And uh, actually my first WPT bootcamp was Jan with Jan Fisher was there as well and Linda. And uh, so it was an amazing you know, thing. It was like a three-day thing. I think a third day was an option, optional lab day. And it was all this didactic stuff. And, um, and then you do like a sit and go at the end. It was actually one of the funny stories early on. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Yes. Um, as,
1: as much as you so, please. <laughs>
3: yeah, so we did a sit and go and it got down to the last two of us. And it was me and this guy. And I was like, he seemed to be kind of, he seemed to be really passive. So I was like, you know, I don't need to like try to blast this guy out of every pot. And I was like, raising a little bit. And, you know, I didn't know what it was doing basically, but just kind of eking away a little at a time. And then, Jan or Linda like went up and like whispered in the guy's ear. And then he started just like jamming all in on left (laughs) and right. And we ended up sitting at it like on a coin flip and he won and came in the next day. And she said, you know, it's clear that you've like been reading more books and doing things than anybody else in this class. And we were all interested to see how you were going to play. And I was like, oh, feeling really good about myself. You know, as she said it and she said, yeah. And you played like a fucking pussy. I was like, "Oh my god!" Well, it was like, Jan or Linda right say that. Jan said it. Jan. said yeah, You yeah. played like you, or maybe it was a damn pussy, but whatever it was, it was like a punch right in the chops. And I was like, "Oh man!" She's like, "Yeah, we thought you, know, you weren't aggressive, and you weren't this." And I was just like, "Oh wow!" You know, like I, I really need to learn how to be aggressive then. So then I just became like a maniac for a little while, and then I was like, "Okay, that'll I'm do it. Actually Figure out what i are doing. <laughs> yeah, but it was great. It was like the kick that I needed, and it was so funny.
1: Yeah, the reason that I asked was because this week actually I've had Linda and Jan on. They're my guests for this past week, or this will be maybe mm-hmm. a couple of weeks past uh, past this when this episode goes live. But yeah, they they were both on the podcast, they're and so I remember. Yeah, Linda was running the WPT boot camps at that time, so that that makes a lot of sense. They, yeah, they're amazing human beings. Some of my my favorite people in the entire poker world. Um, for sure. So what happened after? when you decided to turn maniacal, I assume that Mm. you did try to find some sort of education on being more aggressive.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I just, um, for a little while, like there wasn't that much out there. You weren't getting the maniacal side from the Dan Harrington books, uh, for sure. But, you know, I, you know, I was just playing around with stuff and just kind of randomly being aggressive, you know, and didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and then, you know, but I still just I could try to read the stuff that was out there. And then there was, you know, more stuff came out like Ed Miller came out with a bunch of books back then. Um, and then as more and more sites became available, like there became actually like didactic information and videos and stuff like that, that you could you know start learning about uh, things. I started playing in more charity tournaments and, um, you know, and eventually like eventually like I tend to join every single site, you
4: know, and yeah.
3: uh, so I think I'm a member of like everything um even now and you know i just want all the software and i want to see what's on all the sites and um and just read everything that you can uh to get the different perspectives you know for sure and uh so
1: did you, did you transition to more tournaments after that and play like solely tournaments because i have to imagine with your schedule and your lifestyle like tournaments are feel like they're tough tougher than cash games just because of the outright time commitments they require. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Um, sit and goes were great, you know, from a time perspective, and that's still true. Um, and cash was still, you know, the most time effective and the thing that made the most sense. I just wasn't that excited by cash. You know, I just felt like it was always the same, you know. And so when the, there was these charity tournaments that started up around DC, and they were actually pretty good um, money. Um, so I started playing in those a bunch. And, um, what know, do you mean by pretty, like good, one,
1: pretty good, pretty yeah. good money in the charity tournaments?
3: Um, You know, it was, I not remember how much it cost, like a hundred and, you know, whatever, a hundred bucks or 200 bucks or something to enter. Um, and then, you know, if you win the thing, you were getting like four grand or five grand, which just seemed like a lot of money yeah. at the time. And it was nice. And this, this is all before we had casinos in Maryland. And then, of course, as we got casinos, now we have three. Um, it became much easier to go and play. And like our tournaments now, our one-day tournaments around here are fantastic. Maryland Live you know, runs amazing tournaments and, um, and MGM, you know, runs a bunch as well. So there's lots of opportunities for live, uh, tournaments, you know, but then, you know, online, I, you know, I started playing more tournaments when I could. Uh, but again, back when I, before I had the job I have now, you know, I was working a lot during the week and stuff. So it would be, you know, weekends and stuff. So I wasn't playing online as much as I do now.
1: Oh, and what is the job that you have now?
3: So now I work from home um, and I work for a group that's based in California. Um, so I'm working basically the night shift for them. So I work from 5 to 11 a.m. one week on and one week off. And uh, so even the weeks that I work, I still have some like I worked today, you know, before we chatted. Um, yeah. So I still have time. But it means that I do have some weekend commitment every other weekend. So it does make it hard to harder to play live tournaments in some ways. Um, but that means on my weeks off, I can play more online um, with around which around here is like ACR and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and you get to go to the WSOP, which apparently, exactly. apparently, is, is a, a good thing for you. Um, <laughs> when when did you start going out to the WSOP, making you know that pilgrimage? And how many times have yeah, you been I, out there?
3: I not you know, I should have looked before we talked on my Hendon, but it's probably been six or seven years, I guess I'd say something like that. Um, you know, I, I definitely been, was out in Vegas playing before, you know, starting to play stuff in the, the WSOP. Um, so I'd play like a, some at the Aria and, uh, and some things like that. I'm playing some catch out there as well. But, uh, when I was first learning, but, um, but the WSOP has been probably, I guess, six or seven years. Yeah. And, and then I've been going to, you know, did some circuit things and stuff like that. So, um,
1: yeah, I'm sure. With your local casinos, have some sort of thing go through there throughout the year.
3: Yeah, well, and also Borgata. You know, um, that's true. And then, how far then away is
1: Borgata from Maryland?
3: It's not bad. So, like Atlantic City, you can drive up there in like three hours, four hours, somewhere in that time range. I like to take the, the subway or not the subway, the train. You know, you could take Amtrak to Philly and then you switch over to this local thing. It's like a subway thing that gets you the rest of the way. Um, and uh, and then you don't have to to stress about anything. Leave whenever you need to.
1: Yeah, nice. It's not bad. Not bad at all. Um, yeah. So when you decided to go out to the WSOP, tell me about, you know, your first experiences there. What was your goal just to compete and kind of see how how you did?
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think you never can really appreciate where you are in poker, while you're at that point in poker, I don't think, you know, you don't gain the perspective on it until you're past that point, you know, so like, I look back now, at times where I felt like, like, in the early couple of times that I went, where I felt like, oh, I was at the top of my game, which I was, you know, but like, I really had no idea what I was doing, you know, and you look back at some of the stuff, or just even how you felt, like, where you'd feel like, oh, something was really unfair, you know, or you yeah. know, he got so lucky, or, the, you know, just all these kind of things, and you're just like, this is just like a standard flip, you know now. and uh, your perspective on the stuff changes a lot.
1: Yeah, it, you can't <laughs> you can't see your blind spots else they wouldn't be called blind spots until you uh, reconcile them and then you notice them in hindsight. But when you're in the present moment, you just don't know what you don't know. And that makes especially poker a game where the feedback mechanism is very distorted. It, it makes progression quite difficult. Um, and identifying blind spots, quite difficult because we don't always get punished for bad decisions and we don't always get rewarded for good decisions either.
3: hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's where playing online was really, really helpful. Cause it's like, you need the repetition to just see like how much variance there is and how standard so many spots are, you know, that you walk away from things like if you made a you've made your best decision that you could in the moment, you're like completely satisfied with it. You know, like you just kind of get over the sweating the flips and sweating the, you know, even things that are like 60-40 and feeling that that's somehow unjust when it doesn't go your way or even things that are 80-20, like it sucks. But, you know, you just, you begin to become numb, much more numb to that, you know, whereas I think when you're less experienced, you can get really caught up in the emotions of things that feel unfair or whatever at the time and truly aren't. Yeah, I hope
1: it's not numb. I hope it's just you recognize the truth of the situation and you understand the possibilities, you know? It's like mm-hmm. um if you're in a place that has like 90% chance rain and 10% uh 90% chance sunshine and 10% rain like you don't just cry when it rains. (laughs) Like 10% 10 (laughs) is like a thing that happens quite often and is actually quite common, um, 10 to 20% thing happening. And you just realize like, okay, this is just like, this is the world that I'm in and this is the reality of the game that I play. And so we accept that truth and just move on with our lives instead of thinking like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to win every tournament that I play. When the reality is like, you do the best that you can to make good decisions. And sometimes the best decision that you make leads to you busting out. And the best decision that your opponent could make leads to you busting out. And there's just nothing anybody can do. It's kind of in the fate of the cards.
3: Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, and it's not numb as in like, you aren't having any emotion at all. But I do think that it's good to try to get to a point where those swings aren't so great. You know, because I think that makes it hard to play long term, you know, when you're like on this crazy emotion, emotional roller coaster of, of things, you know. And, you know, I, I try very hard to have to not have great expectations, certainly in any one given tournament, you know, like in this women's tournament. I mean, I, re- I went in least amount in chips, you know, but my goal at that point, Mike, my, I don't make goals that are, you know. Things that you really can't control, like win a bracelet or things like that. Anyway, but you have like your bucket list things, and my bucket list thing at that point was like make final table a major tournament, you know. And so walking into that tournament, I just felt like I'm free rolling, you know, like I accomplished my what my bucket list would goal would have been, and everything else, anything else that happens is mm-hmm. just icing on the cake, you know, with and zero expectations. Not expectations that I will ladder up, and not expectations of anything. And if whatever happens, then you're fine with it, you know. And it's, it's easier a, to do as the short stack.
1: Yeah, you, less expectations when you're the shorty yeah. coming in.
3: It's harder to go in in some ways as the you know the big stack, even especially if you're like a big stack by a mar- like a large margin. It's like everybody has like all these expectations that you're going to now you're going to guarantee to win it. And we've all been there and had it not happen, you know, but it's very difficult in that moment to not feel this sense of loss when you're no longer the chip leader. It's really, that's a really hard thing, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think it ties into, you know, what what we were talking about being numb, not really being numb, but so I run a program a couple of times a year called the elite program. And one of the things we focus on, on the performance and mental game side of poker is recovery. So in my mind, everything is recovery. It's like, it's the root of high performance. And when you're inexperienced, you tend to not recover very quickly from these catastrophic moments. But as you gain experience, you still feel the emotions. You still feel the, you know, the agony of defeat, but you're just able Mm -hmm. to recover much faster and much more efficiently than you otherwise would, right? Right. And you know, recovery is a return to something. And in this, in this case, in the way that I think about it, it's a return to your A game or a high level of performance. And like, as you gain more experience in the world of poker, you're just able to recover much faster from these things because you've been through them very often. And so you recognize like, oh, this is a thing that just happens very frequently. So feel the emotion, recover, and then kind of go from there. Um, and for my cash game people, that are looking to play high volume, recovery is kind of everything. Because if you can't recover from a hand, you've got a couple of choices that are not very appealing. One of them is to keep playing through through it um, while your play is lowered and your EV drops. The other alternative is to just quit playing altogether until you're able to deal with your emotions and recover and get back to where you need to be to be a winner in the games um but ultimately it all boils down to just being able to recover very very quickly and i think that's that's sort of the the key to the crushers in the poker world you know they have a big stack they lose 60% of it they're able to recover and honor their new reality and play in a way that's consistent with what their reality is instead of getting stuck in what their reality was And then pressing or making just bad decisions, you know, playing at a much lower level.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree with that 100%. It's um, all of those aspects, I think, around mental game training are so important, you know, things that you do before, during and after the time that you're playing. Um, You know, I've done a lot of, I've spent a lot of time working with Elliot Rowe over the years and um, his A-game masterclass really focuses on a lot of that um, stuff about basically having a system. Um and doing all these things to optimize. Cause I look at myself and I'm like, all right, I'm working full time. Um, you know, and the time that I have to put in to study, to do sims, to do all these other things is it should be somewhat more limited than somebody who's playing full time, you know, maybe, maybe not, arguably. But um, you know, how do I try to minimize the distance between myself and the people that, you know, are better than me? You know, and it's, you know, what are the easy edges that I can take, you know. Can I, you know, or what are the things that I can do that I should be doing anyway, whether it's, you know, staying in shape, you know, having a good diet, sleeping, you know, any of those other things that are super plus EV, but they actually don't really, you know, they don't even take more time than what you should be doing with your normal life. Anyway, those, like those things all should be in order.
1: For sure. um, And and on the technical uh, side, I think for folks like yourself, like getting a coach, getting somebody that's able to expedite the learning process is pretty essential because like you said, you have limited time. And so you need to maximize your available time and you can invest resources, financial resources into doing so. And coaches, something that will take you maybe two years to identify on your own, that's a blind spot. A coach can recognize very quickly and point it out and you can start plugging those leaks much more effectively, much more efficiently. Um, When you have a very limited time to put in. Like you said, you've got a full-time job. I mean, running Sims takes a lot of time and energy. Study takes a lot of time and energy, and there's only so many hours in the day.
3: Totally agree. Yeah. And that's why, like, so working with Ape Styles one-on-one has been amazing. And then also just, you know, being part of BBZ, like those seminars, like, you know, we'll have a seminar where, you know, they've run a whole bunch of different Sims, you know, so without taking any additional time on my own in a one-hour session, yeah, I can have you know, and not only that, but also have somebody who's at a much higher level than me explaining the thought process behind everything that they're thinking about a spot, you know, and you just hear that over and over and over again. And you begin to internalize, you know, a lot of that stuff over time. And, you know, so it's incredibly, you know, it is time consuming to go through a lot of seminars in a week because there's lots of them in BBC, but it's great, um, you know.
1: From the, the training and coaching side of it, I can say that like all the, sim, all, all webinars, all training material it's it goes through a refining process and the final part is the webinar itself and the information that is most impactful and so whenever you do consume a webinar you're really consuming uh, somebody taking you know, 10 to 20 hours compiling information, looking at data, running sims and trying to organize it in a way that people can learn from it and both execute it at the tables at the same time. And that's just a very painstaking process that like, unless you go through it on your own, it's hard to see from the the user or customer standpoint, how much time and effort and care goes into creating one of these things. But you're just getting Concentrated hours from someone in one hour, which obviously is pretty beneficial at, at the end of the day.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, there's um, things like I think the products that you have and like Jonathan Little has a tournament masterclass and a lot of his other things that are like that, you know, where they've really taken a ton of time offline to like synthesize and come up, you know, with a way of delivering, you know, materials. And some of the products that are in BBZ are similar. Um, and then like our seminars, some of the things, you know, we're like kind of talking and brainstorming in real time and just, you know, like in, you know, reviewing some of this. And that stuff is super valuable as well. Cause like, to me, hearing like, it really is a fast track to hear somebody like Jordan going through, like, here, you know, here's what I'm thinking in this spot. And you're like, Oh wow. You know, and you, you know, there's like eight different things that you weren't considering and even thinking about, but then you, then you begin to see that in other hands And you hear it over and over again, you know, and, um, and that begins to train your own thinking, um, to, you know, to a higher level. Yeah. You're Um, you're
1: immersing yourself in the culture of winning high level poker players. And, you know, it's like, you want to learn, learn a language really quick. Well, just move to the location and immerse yourself in the culture and the language. And that's like the best way to learn the language. Um, poker, poker is the same. So Let's go back to WSOP now, and let's talk about what were your plans this year? What are your plans for the past five or six years? Any expectations? I guess you, you don't have much, many expectations that you set for yourself, because smartly, you deal with it in a process-oriented, systematic way, which I think yields more long-term results than, you know, goals that are focused on like winning a bracelet, because that's totally arbitrary (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it's just a thing like you can't you can play the best poker of your life for 20 years straight and not win a bracelet and that's just the reality of and nature of variance so control the controllables but yeah
3: exactly so i mean so many things have to go right just randomly to to win a tournament of whatever it is no matter who you are
1: yeah um well your name firstly has to be ollie surovich i think that's that's the (laughs) prerequisite
3: (laughs) 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 exactly Yeah. But, yeah, for me, like, going to the WSOP, like, I mean, mostly I just wanted to try to play the best that I could, you know, as I was first, you know, starting to, you know, to show up and, and go to events, you know, I, would you know, the first main event, you know, like, I really just wanted to make, you know, if I could make day two, you know, like everybody, you know, things, and, and I've never cached the main event. I've, I've played it, like, I think four now, or maybe maybe even five times. Um, what is, what is the best A3? you could do look like? I mean, t- for me, I think like what I've really worked on training over time has been my ability to focus for long periods of time, you know, so through meditation um, and things like that to try to maintain my A game as long as I can. And um, and main and have my focus be as strong as I can uh, for as long as I can, basically. You know, and I mean, the main event is is a super grind, obviously, but you know, any multi day tournament is is pretty intense, um, in that same way, and so you know, I'm trying to just you know, stay. F- it's very difficult for people now. There's so many distractions, and like everybody's on TikTok, and like our everyone's attention span is like 10 seconds. So you know, I kind of stay off of social media a lot, partly because of it. You know, is I just you know, I w- want to spend my time as wisely as I can. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I surf around a little bit, but, um, you know, so a good day for me in playing a tournament, it was one where I did maintain focus and, you know, I didn't allow myself to get off distracted and looking at my phone or doing whatever, you know, and then, you know, just made considered, you know, decisions. If I made good decisions, I don't really care how the flips went or how the other things happened.
1: Do you take any measures to ensure that you're not Super distracted while you're there. I, I just think about like, you know, how how the world it, it, it's kind of a stacked deck, right? Like everything is engineered to grab your attention and hold it for as long as possible. Like every single thing, our phones, for instance. There's just pro- probably hundreds of uh, ten, at least tens of billions of dollars in research and development that's gone into maximizing how long you hold it, how long you. Look at it. How many apps you download? Um, when you do open an app, how long you stay in that app? From color scheme to the language that they use, everything is just kind of designed to distract. I mean that that's really the the commodity of the world is our attention, and we can see this is reflected in all the things around us. Um, so, do you like leave your phone in your room? How do you keep from getting distracted?
3: Yeah. So I don't. Um... Other than texts, I don't have anything that makes a noise. So like mm. emails coming in, don't make a noise, like, like whatever, Facebook, Twitter, any of those things. I've silenced all that stuff always. I don't ever have that stuff making noise, including on my computer because I don't want to be distracted by it. Um, texts, I sometimes have to answer. So that makes noise. Um, and if somebody needs to reach me, they can call me. But, um, you know, that way I don't have a noise that makes me want to pick up the phone. I don't, I take the phone to the poker table, um, you know, and then the, the times that I do the very best, you know, I have it down. You know, I might, you know, look at something when we change dealers or something like that. Um, But I don't, I don't have it up and like looking at it, you know, and I went through periods where everybody's like, you know, oh, you need to write down hands while you're playing live and be sure you're taking notes on people and things like that. And I think those are all good ideas. I do find that sometimes that can be distracting as well, you know, in that if I'm spending too much time taking notes, you know, and, doing that then there's times that i miss stuff at the table because i think there's just a lot of physical information that people give off um, and that's probably worth more than taking notes on people at the wsip who i'm probably never playing with again
0: the decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy too tight and they know what you have too loose and you're easy to run over Pre-Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your pre-flop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp available now.
2: John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a pre-flop bootcamp.
4: Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I love the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp, And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable, but I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general.
2: Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience?
4: The most interesting thing about the boot camp. It's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well.
2: I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study?
4: Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to to know that stuff ten years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally Insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap, and it's changed my game in ways that I I can't even explain to you.
2: If you'd like to join the next round of pre-flop boot camp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com/bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com/bootcamp.
1: Yeah. Task switching is a dangerous game. And even so like anecdotal story, uh, John started randomizing um, maybe in like February or March preflop, like in cash games. And he randomized a spot where he had a hand that was like on the cusp on the button. I think it was like six, four suited. Actually, I know it was exactly six, four suited. And he ended up folding preflop after like, Rolling a low number or whatever. I don't know how the kids do their randomizations. Um, but basically, he didn't raise six four suit on the button. And it was in a coaching session, a recorded plane explain. It, and I'm like, yo, the big blind is a fish. Like the big blind <laughs> is a weak player. Like this should be automatic Those 100, 100%. Right. But what happened was he took his eye off the table configuration, looked at the random number generator and forgot to check that the big blind is a weak player. And so you should just be opening every single time. And so like any time, even something as simple as that, looking down with something that's just always rolling um, and then looking back up, it, it can distract and take away from the, your available data points to make good decisions. So like, yeah, picking up your phone, looking at it, obviously you're going to miss something. Like there's, there's a cost to investing your attention into your phone. I think- if I were going to do it, what I would do is try to focus on my own blind spots, questions that I need answers or a spot where I've just lost, like whether it be 3 bet pot, out of position with a specific depth on specific flop texture, um, in position or out of position, and use like the voice recorder to just kind of mm. give myself That's a, a note I need to investigate this and study because I'm not quite sure about this spot. And that way, at least it's something you can take with you and use in perpetuity for the rest of the tournaments that you play throughout your life for the rest of the cash games. Um, it's more of a leak finding exercise than like taking notes on specific players. But I mean, the reality is you could bust in the next five minutes and it could be totally pointless. You could bust for uh, you could bust by missing a data point while you're taking a note that costs you the entire tournament. And then that note is just totally useless for the rest of time, right? Um, Or you could spend time taking notes, miss data points, and your table could just break. And then where are you, right? (laughs) Like, you know, Um, but so your goal, focus, play well at the WSOP, just, you know, give it hell. Tell me your experience leading up to this year. What was your experience like in past WSOPs? And then, you know, let's talk about the most recent WSOP?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's evolved for me over time just in gaining experience is that I enjoy my time at the table more. Like I'm more relaxed now, Um, you know, and I think each year that became progressively more so, but, you know, you'd feel like nervous and tense and like like you're just like out of your element and there's everybody's better than you and there's all these kind of feelings, you know, and it's not like there's tons of people better than me now, but like I felt like, playing the women's tournament and even in the millions millionaire maker before that, you know, I just felt like, you know, I know I'm comfortable, you know, and I can just relax and make sure that I enjoy it. You know, like that was one of the things that Linda said that really resonated with me very early on. She said, you know, I think every time I sit down at the table, you know, I want to play well, you know, I want to have fun and I want the people I play with to have fun too, you know? And I really liked that, you know, and like, I don't, I don't need to be seen as a jerk, you know, and I think you can be an aggressive player you know and play poker well you know and not be you don't have to be a jerk in order to do that too there's people that are going to take things that way no matter what you do but um you know i'd just rather be you know enjoying myself and having fun uh in the process and i really felt like that this time at the wsop so this i played this one week with the intention to play the millionaire maker as far as i made it if i busted in the time frame that made sense i'd play the women's if I then if I busted the women's there was a two day WSOP event, um, so it was going to be Millionaire Maker women's two day event. Um, so I sold some action to a couple of uh, people, including uh, your friend and mine. And uh, so it just, it just said for basically for whatever I do this week, you know. So like I ended up playing like a, you know, one of the daily deep stacks when I busted the Millionaire Maker, and like that's just, that was just in there. But it ended up just being you know really the two WSOP events basically, uh, the way the week worked out so and then um
1: so when you you fired up the ladies event how many runners were there
3: we ended up with 644 and like the, the vibe at the ladies event was just so much fun like everybody really was you know playing good poker and there were some really really strong players um but also just being friendly and having fun like it was like the most probably the most fun WSOP tournament I've ever been in I would say and, um, so like, even at the end of day one, like we, we had a side bet going on how many people were going to enter. And I think, so I think I won 10 bucks like after dinner <laughs> on that one, but uh, the over under, we, we were trying to all debate about what the line should be for the over under on the entries. But yeah, 644, I think is what it was.
1: And, um, and how many days did the event run?
3: It was four days, but it was like day one and day two were full days. And then we played, um, day three was just play down to five people. So I think we came back with like, like 17 people, or something. And uh, there were two tables because we came back and it was like, like you have like your table number. And it was like, there's no chips or anybody even even here. And I had never been to the thing where it's like, you know, there's like the main final event table and then there's side tables. There's like one on each side. So we mm-hmm. were in those, which I just had no idea that's where we'd be. Um, so we played that down to five and that, I think we came back at noon or one o'clock and we were done in time for dinner um, that day and then the the final table of five we didn't come back till four in the afternoon um, and it really only took a few hours the final table so it wasn't really four full days of play
1: yeah that day four though you you come in the short stack right with five left
3: yep yeah there were three of us that were right around the same I was the least mm-hmm. um, and I think I was just under 24 big blinds or so and the others were around 24 25 big blinds and then we had two big stacks
1: at what point did it dawn on you that like oh maybe maybe i'm going to upgrade my um achievement achievement checkbox here in this tournament when you had you know little expectations going in the short stack and then at some point right you start realizing oh shit i can see the finish line and like i'm in the lead <laughs> i i've i've got a legitimate chance
3: yeah i honestly never really, let myself start thinking about it until we got heads up, probably, um, you know, because it just first of all i I stayed a short stack for a really long time. you know, I ended up obviously in a critical hand um, where I doubled up um where I had ace King, which I still have to go back and run it. I think the, the way I played it, it worked out great for me, but I'm not really I think it probably was not the optimal way to have played it
1: well we um, we, we can't. Leave that um leave the hand the the listener thinking about the hand, so let let's break it down um,
3: yeah, yeah. so we were so there's there were four of us left, um and the woman with the short stack who was on the cutoff, I believe, raised, and i I had eyeballed her stack either incorrectly or else on the stream they calculated incorrectly, but I think that their's maybe be accurate. I thought she had about thirteen bigs. Um, they put her as 15, which may be true, but she min-raised the cutoff and has generally been fairly tight. Um, and so I thought, I, d- I felt like this was going to be a quite strong range the time that she did it, which I was, I had ace-king off and I was completely fine getting it in with her, you know, whatever she had. And frankly, I mean, I'm fine, obviously at the end, getting it in with whatever, but, um, I decided to just rebet bet her rather than shove. And part of the reason for that was just thinking that, number one, I wanted Aoki, um, who was the ship leader, out of the pot. Obviously, I'm not going to call. Um, and I also wanted the initial raiser to possibly get it in with hands like ace-queen or ace-jack off of her short stack and not just blast those out of the pot and only end up with, you know, the very top of her range. So I, she min-raised... Which I think was to 160,000. Um, 160, I made it four hundred, and I had about twenty six big blinds or so at the time, and then, um, Alki shoved. So, which I think she had, and she had Ace Queen off. Um, which I think, in her position, is a good move. We um, can debate like what you think the different ranges are there. If I'm making my move lighter, um, but the short stack ended up kind of. Hollywood tank folding. Um, and then it was back on me. And, and I remember thinking at the time that people are going to look at this stream and think that like, how am I not snap, snap calling ace king here? Um, but that it actually was still a very difficult spot, you know, that I had kind of basically created for myself. Um, and because I had, the main thing I was thinking is, does she do this with ace queen or not? Um, Cause I don't think she's doing it lighter than that um, given the situation. And otherwise I'm just flipping and, because of the, way the tab- because of the way the table had been playing, I actually felt like I could play a stack of 20 to 22, 23 big blinds fairly well and keep pots small and potentially come back from that. So I did think about that. And in the end, I thought, well, if I double up here, that really puts me in a position to potentially win it all. And I don't care that much whether I make one pay jump here. It'd be great. I mean, I wouldn't leave the money on the ground. But that was really, at that point, that wasn't why I was there. So yeah. that I made the call. Um, and she did have Ace-Queen, which was lucky for me.
1: Well, you, you mentioned that you did that to yourself. And I think it's interesting to ask whether she just calls it off if you jam with Ace-King. Like, if you jam I don't think so. with your 3-bet, does she just call it off with Ace-Queen? In which case, it's really good that you did that to yourself because you enabled her to have Ace-Queen in her range um, to jam with, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... As it as it worked out, you know, it it ended up being optimal with the exact hand that she had, um, but she could do the very same thing with like eights plus. Sure, you know, and you but she's know, probably calling. Does
1: does she actually thing. does she call all in with eights plus? I guess what, like what's the the all in call range? It's hard to know if you just yeah. jam.
3: And the problem is that the original original razor had been playing fairly snugly. Yeah, um, you know, and so why put your you know, it, and it's sort of different. Like it's you know, when we sit and we review these tournaments of people that are like the very top crushers in the game who are taking every possible edge and they're playing, you know, very close to GTO stuff, it's the ranges are different than what I feel like the ranges were here. And I think people are tighter in general at Final Tables, as they should be. But um
1: The uh the range makeup for less experienced players is significantly different than the range makeup for more experienced players. And typically yeah. from what I've seen, at least on the cash game side, less experienced players open much tighter. Um, they three bet much tighter than more experienced players. So for I sure. think, I think your analysis is pretty spot on that like somebody that's playing, like, like you said, pretty snugly, um, <laughs> not snuggling up to people, but playing pretty tight. <laughs> um, they're, they're, initial opening range is going to be fairly tight. And then, which makes your three bet fairly tight, which means the cold four jam ought to be pretty tight. I mean, that should be exactly. like a, a pretty tight cold four bet jam. Um, and yeah, again, I don't know the formations. I do know that you had, you know, like 24 bigs. I can't imagine. I can never imagine folding ace king off for like 100 <laughs> in, in a hundred bigs in a cash game. So like 24 is like,
3: I know it seems like, well, this is obvious. I think I had 26 or so, but, um, you know, but still it's like when you, we do a lot of ICM study in BBZ and there's like a bunch of times where really all you end up being able to call within certain spots or pairs Mm -hmm. and ace king off is the first thing that leaves, Um, you know, as far as offsuit hands go. It's, I mean, obviously ace queen, but, you know, when it comes to things that are normally part of a tight uh, range, you know, so I just have in my head Yargo from BBZ saying, really bro, just X plus here. Really? and you have to be so tight and like, oh, well, hopefully, hopefully it'll work out.
1: Yeah. That's so the ICM considerations. And also that like in high leverage, high pressure spots, I think human beings tend to play a little too tight as well as you know, you have five players left in or five or four at this point. I'm not sure how many were left at a final table, the WSOP, um, players just are going to feel the pressure and not want to be at risk um
3: yeah exactly i mean i'm sure that if, we, if we run this then i will like you're gonna end up seeing like ace x suited and king x suited just ripping it in everybody's face and making unfold right. you right. know stuff like that but it's like that's not happening mm-hmm. at this table um you know and it, not to diss anybody it's just not how it was being played um but and when nobody's playing maybe except Adamo like solvers, and just ripping everything in everybody's face. Uh, so It's hard.
1: I mean, the reality is, like, strategies will shift and change based on the villain that you're playing against. And this is true in cash and tournaments and pretty much everything, that as your opponents shift from what is baseline strategy, the counter strategies will also shift. And it's the job of the professional poker player or the high-level poker player to be able to discern when a player is deviating and what the response strategy the counter strategy ought to be in the moment and yeah that's not very fun telling people that like yeah we have to take this this sort of like abstract concept and apply it and just hope that we're calibrating correctly but i mean that's what this game is we just we have to trust ourselves and hope that we're calibrating correctly and if we find spots that we're not We need to investigate that and see like, hmm, what could I have known here? Or what does baseline look like? And then what are the strategic shifts and adjustments based on somebody opening more than they should, opening less than they should, et cetera.
3: Exactly, yep.
1: So you you take it down. You take down the ace king versus ace queen. And how many players were left after that?
3: So we were four players then. Um, That put me just in barely in the chip lead ahead of Deborah, on my right. And um, you know, and then um there was a critical hand where um the same player who had raised in uh the hand I just mentioned ended up um like making a very small three bet against my open. And I had um I think nine, eight suited. Um so because the three bet was so small, I called, ended up hitting a flush draw, flop check through and I hit it on the turn. Um and she'd had pocket queens. So she ended up I ended up busting her in that hand, um, and then we were three. And Aoki and Aoki had an Aoki, I should say, um, had been very short in that. Going into that, as, as that hand came up, that was the flush hand. So she had like four or five big blinds, and and ended up getting into third place. Um, and she ended up shoving a hand or two later, which I had, had king queen and ended up uh, winning. So then we were heads up. Heads up! Heads up! Lasted, yeah. I don't know how long that lasted—like an hour or maybe forty-five minutes—and uh, that was it.
1: That was it. How it feel yeah. watching the, the river, river card run out and all the chips? You got all the chips.
3: Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, it actually ended on the river. I ended up—we both had a king. I had king queen suited again, uh, which is the same hand I had against Alki, and uh, ended up triple barreling. And she called with called top pair, you know, as well. And that was it. And it was crazy you know like it didn't that's when it finally hit me it's like holy crap i just did this you know and uh, there were a bunch of friends who came and were like so nice to be there on the rail and uh so just you know high-fiving everybody and uh taking a bunch of pictures and then we just we all like i just took everybody out and we went and hung out at this place with the fire pit that uh like over at like the four seasons somewhere and we just drank and ate and just It was it was su- super fun
1: Nice. Congratulations. And now, now now you got a very nice trophy in your trophy case.
3: I do. I do. What, what,
1: what now? Like what's the, what's the goal now? Have, have our goals shifted after you have one WSOP bracelet. So what's next?
3: Yeah. I mean, I guess at that point it's, you know, to again, final table a major, you know, or take down a major um you know and the main the next thing is the main event which is pretty tough to take down (laughs) but uh that wouldn't be bad um but yeah i'll be back out for the main event for 1d and then um and then it'll be lying low with live events i suspect through the winter i expect that there'll probably be a covid surge through the winter um you know which will probably hit the lives hurt the live scene some uh through the winter months um, and I'm hoping that WSOP will be back in the summer and uh, plan to you know play another couple of weeks. At some point, I'm going to cut back on how much I work my regular job and then maybe be playing some more uh, and traveling some more. Nice. So it's uh, but yeah, I didn't expect to be checking that box off that soon, and I'm very happy to have done it.
1: Well, congratulations! Um, thank I mean, you. It, it sounds like you've put the work in. You've immersed yourself in your hobby and that's what you have to do to put yourself in a position to take one of these things down. I mean, you you cannot do it and still take one down. I think that's been pro- proven over time. However, to give yourself the best shot of doing it, this is the best path. Um let's move to the lightning round. Um congratulations again. Uh, it's just super cool. Um I hope that I'll be out there in July of next year. That's my hope anyway, my aspiration if things Go according to plan with all the projects that I have in the air. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, doesn't necessarily have to be about poker. What book do you gift?
3: Ooh, that's, that's a tricky one. Um, let me think about it while we do other questions.
2: All right. If you could wave a magic wand,
1: change one thing about poker, what would you change? I
3: think just people feeling they need to be aggressive or mean to people. I mean, aggressive, fine, but like jerks to people, you know, it seems like it's getting better over time, but there's just, you know, like you don't need to get that edge. You know, if that's, if people are doing it to get that edge and get people riled up, like. Just
1: I think cool. they're doing it just because of lack of emotional self-control personally. Like they just can't, they're just like throwing a little tantrum like a an 11 year old at the poker table
3: yeah definitely could be
1: um and I, I talked to jan fisher as well like i like i said and like her experience dealing throughout the 70s and 80s was like mortifying horrifying um yeah, it is to, so much worse horrifying people chunking cards at like people's eyes and i mean just god awful things from yeah people that We didn't really mention any names, but people that probably ought to know better and people that are probably thought of as our heroes in this industry just treating people horrifically, which I guess in a way makes me realize how far we've come like from those days of like, okay, people will throw tantrums and act like little children, but which is bad and inexcusable but holy shit back in the 70s and the 80s it was like another world um, so it's always good
3: absolutely always good well, learning during the
1: progress basically
3: yeah yeah that's true across like so many different things like i mean coming from medicine you know i mean medicine used to be absolutely horrific you know i mean just so abusive uh, to people especially in surgery where i started out you know and you know i i tend to take abuse fairly well you know, maybe not physical abuse, but I haven't had any of that, but, uh, you know, just mental abuse and people being, you know, jerks or whatnot, but, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's not okay. And I think why in surgery,
1: that seems like a spot where you wouldn't want to be rankling or messing with someone.
3: Surgery has always been sort of like the old boys club kind of part of, of medicine you know, and so it's always kind of been, it's the toughest, you know, it's the hardest to get into, um, you know, and all of that kind of thing. And, um, you know, so, and it was all, you know, I, when I started out in surgery, we were working like 110 hours a week, you know, and you're just like sleeping on your feet all the time. And it was just kind of a toughness thing, you know, like don't show pain, you know, and, you know, people kind of yelling at you in the operating room and just, you know, just a lot of abusive stuff. And I think it's gotten better over time. And some of this stuff, like, abuse of just like having to like be up all night at night after night after night like some of it's just like you're gonna have to do that in real life <laughs> you can have you know a time where you have like you know, a whole bunch of bad traumas and the next night there's a whole bunch of bad traumas and you're up for a bunch mm-hmm. you know and you need to be able to be able to handle that and still be functional um but some of the stuff that's just like verbal abuse and stuff like that i think it's really improved over time as people have realized like you can't you you can't
1: Treat people like that. Um, it's yeah. not not a good exactly. way good way of being. Um, like I said, for for the listener, a good way to measure your progress as it relates to studying, learning, and see how you're going. Like what I do with my private coaching students is sometimes after like four months, their homework will be to watch the first video that they sent to me, like rewatch the first mm-hmm. session that we did together as a measuring stick. Because you know, you look at yourself in the mirror every day, you're not going to notice the changes. But if you look at like a time lapse of the last 10 years, you're like, holy shit, that's crazy. Um, So it's good to like measure progress by looking at a past version of yourself and being like, okay, I am thinking about this game differently. I have learned a lot of things. These things that I was struggling with, I have resolved. And I, I just think that's a good way to measure whether you're progressing or not. And also a good way to give yourself some comfort if you're progressing and yet the feedback mechanism in poker is saying you're not progressing at all. AKA you're getting your face smashed in.
3: Right. Yeah. No, I think it's good. You can really get lost in the looking at things day to day and, uh, and not feeling like you're making much progress. So it's good to take that, that big picture view.
1: Um, so if you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on, on the way to the casino. What does your billboard say?
3: Brief.
2: Why breathe?
3: I think like um Fistan had I'll mispronounce his name, but uh like one of his Zen posters is Breathe, you are online.
1: Breathe what? And say
3: say it again. You are online. Mm. You know, and just you know stop, take a breath, you know, realize that we're all you know, we're all part of the same thing. Everybody on earth, you know, in this world is trying to not be in pain to try to enjoy their life and to have fun, you know, and really your purpose of being here is to, you know, try to enjoy your own life and try to help other people enjoy theirs as well. You know, and anything that you're doing that's hurting other people or impeding that is kind of living out of harmony.
0: Yeah.
1: You're, we ought to celebrate our consciousness on this planet. And when you're breathing, you are alive, right? And um, I think from a performance side as well, like taking deep breaths, like I download an app called Breathwork that I do fairly religiously, waking up, going to sleep um, throughout the day and just understanding that like, oh, breathing is actually a very important part of focus and energy and how our body works just because of oxygenation and like <laughs> it's a, it's a very important thing to breathe efficiently and effectively and a lot of times i think that like online poker players specifically will like start hyperventilating they'll start taking shallow breaths um yeah. which leads to like downstream problems and probably in poker tournaments as well When you get a high pressure situation, you forget to take deep breaths. So from a functional standpoint, as well as a practical standpoint, I think that's a great billboard.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, Yeah, that whole notion of trying to treat poker as a meditation, you know, Tommy Angelo talked about that, of you know, trying to kind of just breathe and recenter himself in between hands, you know, and sort of just see sitting at the table as a meditation. Like, I really like that idea a lot.
1: Yeah. And it also is like how mindfulness works too, right? It's a bringing, it's a recovery, bring yourself back to the present moment. So like recovery, recenter, back to the present moment. Let's focus on the task at hand, whatever the situation may be.
3: Exactly. And take the big picture thing of, you know, like how privileged you are. You're sitting at a table playing games for money. You know, these are huge, huge, you know, and you feel stress. You know, well, boohoo, poor you. You're in a first world problem. Of, yeah. You know, having having the resources to be able to plunk down a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars to play a game for money, that's yeah. pretty privileged. And uh, so it makes you feel a lot less stressed when you realize right where you're at.
1: Yeah, and if you're thinking of having an emotional breakdown at the table because of a bad beat, also bear that in mind. That like <laughs> just having the opportunity yeah. to be here is kind of kind of a first world thing. So it shouldn't be the end of the world when you take a bad beat. You shouldn't treat your fellow man shittily because life could be a lot a lot worse.
3: Exactly, I do feel that like having trying to remember like what your progress was helps too. Though, like I have more sympathy now for people who you know, get upset at a bad beat where I don't get as upset now. Um, in that like I've been there, you know, where I and it's mostly comes from a lack of understanding and experience, I think, of just recognizing how ordinary that hand just was. Mm-hmm. Even if it feels unordinary, even if it was, you know, something that should only happen, you know, five percent of the time or three percent of the time. It's not it's not like one in a million. Right. You know, like- and it's just like it's gonna happen exactly that percent of the time over time. And so it's like sucks but you know but not understanding that creates you know severe dissonance and makes people upset
1: laura did you did you come up with a book by the way we're circling back to the book question now
3: yeah i i mean it's nonfiction, but the art of learning by josh waitskin i really liked a lot um in that it just kind of focuses on enjoying the joy you know enjoying but recognizing the joy of the process you know and um and i think that's really applicable to poker you know and and anything else that you want to do for that matter either is you know it's great i'm really glad i won a bracelet and it was you know the stars aligned for that to happen and i'm very grateful that it did you know but recognizing that the you have to enjoy the process of it you need to enjoy the you know the the learning and the you know sparring and everything else that goes on that's the part that you better enjoy or you're not just not going to have that many times where you like win a tournament. Yeah. That's the only part that's making you happy. You're going to be pretty unhappy most of the time.
1: Yeah. Or just get the hell beat out of you. Right. Like that's part of the process as well is like, um, we can only control so much and you can't control a ton in the poker world. And so if you're trying to control reality in a way where you never take a bad beat, that's probably not the right paradigm in which to approach poker. You should instead just, prepare yourself for the eventuality. Things are not going to go your way and understand that this is part of the journey. Like this is just part of the contract you signed when you decided to take on poker as a hobby um, or as a profession.
3: Yeah. More than anything else, I think, you know, everything else that I've competed in, you know, your results are usually fairly in line with the inputs, you know, and poker can very much not be that way. You know, where you can like play the best poker you played in your whole life and just like lose miserably, you know, sure. and it's just, you know, it's a, that's just the nature of it for sure. And it's very different than most other things that way, you know. Um, and, you know, but I think being able to see your own mistakes as opportunities, you know, and instead of beating yourself up over them, you know, like making that transition um, was a really important one for me as well, because, you know, then. Every session that you have whether you made a bunch of mistakes or whether you played great is a successful session because you walk away with learning opportunities and seeing that as a gift is really important.
1: Yeah, and you got to give yourself permission to make mistakes. You know, I was having oh this God. having this yeah. conversation with a high-level player in my community and we were laughing about we were laughing about something and basically we we both kind of said simultaneously that like neither of us are sure about 98% of the decisions we make at the poker table. Like we're never just like (laughs) making a decision and being like, wow, I'm totally confident that this is the right thing. Like there's always these questions of like, hmm, was that the best way? Is there another way? Should I have done something differently? And I think that that's a very important recipe for high level poker players. This notion that we found a good play, is there a better play? am I confident that this was the best play? Whether we win the pot or lose the pot or whatever the results may be, we're just putting those to the side and being like, how confident I am that like this is the best way to play this hand. Well, I, I'm not very confident. In very, very often, I'm not very confident. And, and I think that's just something folks have to accept. And if you do think that you're confident in like 95% of the spots that you're in- You're, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> you, you, you don't know enough to know- what you don't know. Right. You know, enough just to be dangerous. Right. And the more I for learn sure. about this game, the more I realize, like, wow, I don't know anything. <laughs> like I know yeah. more than most, all humans. And I feel like I don't know anything. And so when people feel like they have the answers is like an automatic red flag for me, like, wait a minute, like that's exactly. mm, don't know.
3: And I love that about in our seminars with Jordan, uh, in BBZ, he is always saying, you know, oh yeah, no, I'm, I think I'm betting large here 20% of the time, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm betting small here but I'm checking 50%. Like he's not thinking, you know, I mean, there's definitely spots where you're you're betting small with range 100% or when you're doing whatever. But in so many spots, you know, he literally and he, you know, is he's randomizing for those things, but he's thinking about, you know, two to three options in most spots. And that's, you know, that makes you realize that yeah, these aren't aren't binary decisions so often.
1: Yeah, it's called no limit hold'em, which means we've got lots of <laughs> a spectrum of options at our disposal. Um, Laura, it's been great having you on. Thank you for it's been so much fun. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure, and we'll have you back on. Uh, maybe maybe I can get like a live CPG thing going on at next WSOP. That maybe that's the motivation that I need to sit people down fun. like in real time. But it's been great having you on and getting to know you better. Congratulations again. And look forward to keeping up with what you're doing in the world of poker.
0: My pleasure.
3: This was great. Appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.